I actually am following the readings from the liturgical calendar leading up to Easter. So let me do three readings here, and I'll uh, bring these three readings together. I think they do harmonize very nicely. I have not done the ones from the Psalms, but actually the Psalms readings fit into this too, but um, they're two fairly long passages. The first is from uh, Jeremiah 31, and verse 31 to 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And obviously the picture here is of a covenant that will transform people's character, transform their heart. And then the reading, next reading is from Hebrews 5, 5 to 10. Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are of my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And of course, Melchizedek here is representative of an enduring priesthood that does not follow the Levitical priesthood according to the genealogies and uh, according to the, you know, the life, the birth, the death, but is uh, one that is the writer of Hebrews is going to say applies to Christ. And then the third is a reading from the Gospel of John. This is John 12, 20 to 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me 
must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said there, uh, that it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Why is it Jesus begins to talk about his death and glorification with the arrival of the Greeks? There's a kind of abrupt thing, you know, the Greeks show up, Jesus doesn't address the Greeks, he just says, well, my hour is here. How is this connected to the new covenant and the transformed character that is described both in Jeremiah and in the book of Hebrews? Um, how is it connected to the priesthood of Christ? And so I'm going to answer my questions, hopefully. Uh, the arrival of the Greeks prompts Jesus to announce that the hour has arrived. And of course, what hour? What, you know, uh, the hour in John is a moment of divine intervention into human time. If you go through the gospel, Jesus' hour is first mentioned in John 2.4 at the wedding at Cana. And it's really its full significance is withheld. We really don't understand the hour when his mother says, you know, he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. We're wondering, well, what hour is he talking about? But then in chapter 7 to 8, he provides the information. Uh, he in interrupts the story in chapter 7 to say that Jesus' adversaries are looking for a chance to kill him. And twice they would have arrested him. And then the same phrase appears, but his hour had not yet come. And so we understand the hour is connected to the passion of Christ. Uh, what the, the claim I'm going to make is that it's not only the passion, it's not only the death, but the hour is then the full death, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. In 744, his arrest is impeded. It doesn't mention the hour, but in the 7 and 8, the reader knows that the hour that he's referred to at Cana, it's the hour of his arrest. That it's the, the tension is building in the book of John. And so the distressful character of Jesus' hour is especially explained in chapter 16. Uh, it echoes, it develops what's already there in chapter 14. Jesus' followers are troubled by his impending departure. And I think the wording there is interesting. Certainly we know that his departure is the cross, but we also know that he will be raised and ascended. And I think departure captures that full movement. In 16, he refers to his imminent departure in chapter, in verse 5. He says to his followers, they will weep and mourn. And it is in this section 
that he uses the word hour three times. And then he connects it to grief four times, to distress two times, and all of this is being brought together in this hour. So at the center of this passage, Jesus, Jesus appeals uh, the, the idea he's explaining, the hour, he appeals to the metaphor of a woman in labor. And when a woman is in labor, he says, she has pain because her hour has come. Obviously, the hour of giving birth. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a person into the world. So the hour is inclusive of his death, but I think it also refers to the full birth to the movement, the full movement of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit to constitute a new sort of person. Think here of the the grain of wheat is planted in the ground and a a new crop uh, arises. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does, he says in chapter 13, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He's talking about the future in which the Holy Spirit will come. The disciples will go out and preach that he's talking about. This is the hour. So the foreigners, these Greeks, seem to represent for John the rest of the world. And belief that what happened on Calvary reaches to the end of the earth. What is the universality of the gospel? Jesus recognizes the arrival of this hour immediately after the Greeks come to him. And of course, I think it is the cross that makes the difference between a localized deliverance and one intended for all people. So the Greeks are representative of the non-Jewish world. The universality of the gospel then, you know, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, The universality of the gospel is the very, you know, the cross draws all people. So the Greeks are delegates of all people. They trigger the decisive events of this new age unfolding in the passion, the death, the resurrection. And then he discloses that his soul is troubled. He says, this is the purpose for which he came. What should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But it's for this reason I have come to this hour. Why is it then, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself? The cross is the determining element, he says, in the defeat of Satan, the salvation of every individual. You know, the, the prince of this world will be cast out. What is the story of the gospel? Well, it's the story of the battle between God and Satan. You know, think here, Satan. Uh, well, it's the religious rulers it's the roman rulers it's the jewish rulers it's truth and falsehood light and darkness all of these are elements pictured in john life and death 
It's a battle that's acted out in the sphere of human history in the life of Christ. And the decisive victory is won in the life, I think the death, certainly, but we not to the exclusion of the resurrection and the ascension. And so the battle is won in and through the cross and the orientation of every individual in regard to death determines his salvation. Why the cross? Why does this save? It's an odd thing to imagine that a cross saves. And the imagery is that Christ is victorious over Satan. He's victorious over the principalities and powers. Uh, He's victorious over the emissaries, Rome, the Jews, and sometimes his own disciples. You know, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so uh, John uses the language of the archon, of the, you know, the, the principalities, the ruling principles of the cosmos. And John sees death, not exclusive of the resurrection in a sense, as the turning point of the conflict between God and the forces of evil. And the texts seem to refer to the same event when they talk, you know, in 12, we talked about the judgment of this world, the judgment of the ruler of this world, are all contained here in the hour. The death of Jesus, the, the resurrection, I think, again, in, in, and this brings us to his life, his resurrection, ascension. In the days of his flesh, you know, we, we read this passage, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he, what he suffered, And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. When did that happen? Um, If we understand sin as an orientation to death, as described in chapter 2 of Hebrews, that we're enslaved to the fear of death, that Satan enslaves us. And we understand that Jesus did not give in to this orientation throughout his life, throughout his death, and that his being without sin has more to do with his life, with the way that he lived. Then we know that he's modeled for us, and and maybe that's that's not strong enough. It's more than he's modeled. He's given to us a life that is not directed and oriented by death. Here is an alternative humanity. Here is a new way of living that Jesus demonstrates, models, and even that we are allowed to participate in his life. And so this perfection, I think, is directly connected certainly to his life, certainly to his death, but to his resurrection. His resurrection is not simply something tagged on to his death, but is the basis of his life. And the basis of our new life in Christ, we are said to live a resurrection life. Uh, The nature of the life that is mediated to us through his high priesthood is this resurrected life. So Hebrews equates Christ's priesthood and his causal power of perfecting. And so if we understand that the impure, the imperfect, the law, 
human conscience, you know, that's the problem. It couldn't be written on the heart. The conscience could not be transformed. If we understand that that which is made impure or imperfect due to its orientation to death, then we can understand why perfection is accomplished with the kind of life that he gives us. His resurrected life, his, you know, as he's marching to Jerusalem, he's already living in the reality of the resurrection. He passes this He passes through human suffering in every way. And the writer says he's not succumbed to this suffering. He's not succumbed to death. He's not succumbed to the orientation to death. And so he's perfected. He's a high priest acquainted, he says, with our weaknesses. But he's also one who is able to strengthen us in the midst of our suffering and weakness because he's overcome these things in his orientation to life. Jesus' passage beyond the heavens is connected in Hebrews to the penetration of the human heart. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? That as Jesus enters the throne room of God, he also penetrates the depths of human conscience. Uh, They're simultaneous in the book of Hebrews. Why is this the case? Why is it... uh, And why is this brought home in his qualifications as high priest? Because he's endured suffering, but he's also attained enduring life. What afflicts us? What afflicts the heart, the conscience of humankind is this death denial, this orientation to death. Uh, The taking up of death or the fear of death as a kind of grab for life. You know, grab all the gusto you can. Hebrews compares the blood of Jesus to the blood of Abel, the blood of the bulls and goats. And there is a spilt blood, a blood or life which is consumed by death. This blood is not efficacious. We just read about Solomon sacrificing how many? 120,000 oxen. You know, that blood is not efficacious. On the other hand, there is a blood or life which is not subject to death, which cleanses our conscience from sin because it cleanses our conscience from death, from the orientation to death. We've talked about the temple. The temple was not a place where death is introduced. It's a place where enduring life is introduced. It's cleansed of death. And so I'm saying something here that uh, may be a, a little odd to you because many times we connect Jesus being made perfect exclusively with his death. His death is taken to be the atoning sacrifice, you know, which he offers up in the Holy of Holies. And what I'm saying is let's not isolate his death from his life, from his resurrection and from his ascension. And so the offering of Jesus' blood is the presentation of his entire life. It's the presentation of himself before God. And this is, if we go back to the original meaning of the uh, atonement, this is the, the, the significance. So it's unlikely that Hebrews is thinking of the cross as the place that Jesus' offering, or that simply the death of Jesus 
uh, is, is, uh, as the sacrifice that was offered. What, is, what does Jesus do for us? What does he offer? Uh, he's offered himself and all that that is inclusive of. Jesus' offering was presented to God where? In heaven. The very place where he can serve as a high priest. So as a human being, the, the son, Jesus, suffered, died, and was perfected. It's a chronological process and his elevation to the pinnacle of the world is a function of his being made immortal he's defeated death in his resurrection so between the claim that christ was made perfect and the idea that he's the source of perfection hebrews contrasts christ's ability to perfect with the old covenant you know the first covenant if the first covenant made perfect we would not need another house you know, beyond that of Moses. But now we have the perfection of the temple of the body of Christ. If the first covenant made perfect, Joshua's rest would have been sufficient, the Jewish Sabbath. But now we have a Sabbath rest from God. We can truly rest. If the first covenant made perfect, the Levitical priests would not have to repeat their sacrifice. But Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. If the first covenant made perfect, we would not need the, another priesthood. We would not need the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. If the first covenant made perfect, God would not have promised another one in Jeremiah. This is the significance then of the passage in Jeremiah. That it's pointing to what's happening in the life of Christ in John, that the writer of Hebrews is explaining sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me so if the first covenant made perfect Abel Noah Abraham Sarah Isaac Moses would have already received the rest but they still wait for what what are they waiting they're waiting that they might be made perfect as Jesus the high priest and perfecter of our faith was made perfect uh, the incompleteness in the first covenant is found, you know, it's completed in the hope that Christ's perfection secures the inheritance. So the comparison, I don't mean to denigrate Israel, but the purpose of Solomon's sacrifice, the temple, was to point to Christ. That it is a, it is a covenant that is passing uh, away it is only passing away because of the greater thing that has come to replace it. There are three qualifications then in Jesus' priesthood. His ability, it says in this passage, to sympathize with those for whom he ministered, his call by God, and the fact of having passed through death, Jesus attains a life that endures. When did he do that? Well, he attains it at his resurrection at his ascension. So 5, 8 to 10 claims that Jesus underwent this suffering so as to attain, attain perfection. Perfection though, the, the telos is actually the word, is a, a, the perfection is a, a qualification of Jesus' high priesthood. In 2, 9, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor on account of his suffering and death. And here in chapter 5, perfection follows upon suffering. So Jesus can be said to have been perfected 
once he had completely passed through the suffering. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm, again, let me say what I'm saying that may be odd or different. I'm saying he's passed through the cross. He's been resurrected. He's been ascended. The writer is pointing to after his death, to his resurrection, as the point where he achieved perfection. So Jesus remains a high priest forever while the Levitical priest succumbs to death. So being subject to death prior to resurrection, including Jesus, is not to have achieved the the goal, the telos. 7.25, Jesus always lives to intercede for his people. Jesus is in the state of perfection, enduring life, seated at the right hand of God, having ascended forever. Every high priest is called by God, but Jesus in 7, 3, and 8 says he remains, he lives. So the moment when he achieves this perfection, I believe, can be narrowed not to the cross, but to the resurrection, to the ascension. That is, Jesus' high priestly service is one he accomplishes Certainly having passed through the cross, but he accomplishes not from the cross, but subsequent to the empty tomb, to Easter. His priesthood is like that of Melchizedek because of his enduring life, not being subject any longer to death, though he was at one time liable to die. He no longer will suffer death. So in chapter 9, Jesus' entry into the Holy of Holies is equating, equated with his entering into the deep structures of human conscience where there can be cleansing from sin. Just as in chapter 4, the, chap- the passage beyond the heavens coincides with the word that can penetrate to the very soul of people. So this is the covenant, I believe, this is Jeremiah. I will make with the house of Israel a new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works? So the process of being sanctified, being made perfect has commenced. The high priest is exercising this perfecting power in our lives now through his enduring, resurrected, ascended life. Writing his word on our heart, our characters are being changed up. A new kind of humanity is being formed. Let's sing our hymn.